Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Good morning. So one to Sunday morning, the young preacher stepped up at the end of his message when they were getting ready to dismiss, and he said to the congregation, I really have appreciated my time here. I love you guys, but uh, I feel like the Lord has led me to accept uh, another call, so uh, I'll, I'll be leaving. And, you know, there's kind of a surprised, hushed silence. And then after, after the service, he was in the back greeting people on the way out, and there was this this elderly saint who was just in tears. Tears were just filling her eyes. And she said to him, she said, oh, pastor, I hate that so much. I just, I just hate that so much. It'll never be the same without you. And he reached over to her tenderly and grabbed her hand and said, I'm sure it's okay. I'm, I'm sure the Lord will send a pastor that's better than I am. And she just kind of put her head down, kept sobbing. And she said, no, no, no. They say that every time, but they keep getting worse. (laughs) Today's sermon is on the danger of pride. (laughs) Pride can be very deceptive. It can make us think things about ourselves that aren't true. And it can also harm in other ways, as we will see from the book of Obadiah. Now, if you're new to Harvest, we are going through a series called Minor Prophets, Major Impact. There are 12 small prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and each week we're going through one of them. We come today to the book of Obadiah. I don't think... That Well, I'm certain. I know that I have never preached a sermon from Obadiah, and I'm also pretty sure that I've never heard a sermon from Obadiah. We're going to have one today. (laughs) So the background of this book is we could set it up, uh, we, we could set it up this way. Nations and people have a tendency to puff themselves up, but the book of Obadiah sets forth a timeless message for all people of all times. And it's the danger of pride. Now, Obadiah is unusual and it's short. It's unusual in that it's not addressed directly to God's people in the Old Testament. It's addressed to a foreign power called Edom. It's also short. It, in fact, is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's, it's just 21 verses. So on your outline sheet, if you'd like to take notes, um, there's just a place for you to write some observations. The plan this morning is not to try to outline the book, but basically I, we're just going to walk through it. And I'm going to explain what it means along the way. And then I'm going to draw out three lessons for us today for our lives today based on Obadiah. So let's, let's, let's dive in at the top of the book. 
The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Now, before we go any farther, let's, let's talk about who Edom is. So on this map, uh, the blue and the yellow, that's Israel and Judah, were 800 or so years before Jesus Christ lived. And all of that at one point was Israel. They were all the people of God known as Israel. But after uh, the, the death of Solomon, it was divided into two kingdoms. The northern part uh, was kept the name Israel, those ten tribes. And then the southern two tribes took the name of its leading tribe, Judah. So Israel and Judah, but they're all the people of God. Edom, as you can see, is Judah's next-door neighbor. We're going to find out. Not the kind of next-door neighbor you want. And it's more than dark uh, barking dogs. <laughs> Not a good neighbor. That's who Edom is. Now, let me show you where the Edomites came from. So, out in the lobby, we have this little booklet that... Show that if you like to follow along in the series, it shows you what to read during the week between Sunday and Sunday. And also in there, there's some QR codes linked to the Bible Project's videos. These are five to eight minute videos that give an overview of the book. They're really, really good. So pick up one of those if you hadn't had a chance to do that. Some of these screenshots come from that. So in the Old Testament... You had Abraham and Sarah. And then they gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac married Rebekah. And they had two sons named Jacob and Esau. So you had Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and Esau. From Jacob and Esau came people, (laughs) nations. The people of Israel came through the line of Jacob. But through Esau came this nation called Edom. So Edom, the people of Edom are distant relatives of God's people. But they have their own nation. And unfortunately, they are also not... (laughs) um, They're not friendly people. There is a history all through the Old Testament of animosity and hostility between Israel and Edom. So, for instance, in Numbers chapter 20, there was an ancient route known as the King's Highway that people traveled on. And Israel, when God rescued them out of Egypt and they were escaping in the exodus from Egypt, they wanted to travel on that king's highway. But in Numbers chapter 20, the Edomites who controlled it would not let them go through it. In 1 Samuel 14, Saul fought against the Edomites. And in 2 Samuel, David defeated them. And even at the time of Solomon, when you get to 1 Kings 11, you find out that they are the enemies of Israel. So here, Israel is divided into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, but Edom is against them, even though they are in the same family. So this 
prophecy, Obadiah, is given to those people. Let's pick it back up in verse 2 or the middle of verse 1. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? So here's another screenshot. And you can see up at the top of that plateau, that's Edom. So geographically, they were located. If you take the land of Canaan in that time, it rises from, get my directions. I'm, my wife tells me I'm directionally challenged as I am. It's from this direction to the, this direction, west to east. It rises and then you get through there and you get up to where Edom is and it's, it's high mountainous rocky areas and that's where they were set up and that's where they were established and it gave them a military advantage because anybody who wanted to try to come in and attack them here you've got narrow passageways between these large rock formations and they were up on the top you you know those western shows you know, where they're trying to attack and, and the, the people are up on top of the rocks and they've got the advantage with the people, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. You have seen a Western gun smoke. Anybody ever seen or a Western movie? All right. Well, this was Edom and they were proud. They were proud of their superior position. They were proud of their natural resources. They had copper mines. They were proud of their defenses. But notice verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. They were also proud of their wealth, but notice verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Now notice I've got Esau highlighted. You're going to see different names along the way. It's talking about the same nation. Remember, they descended from Esau. So it's called Edom, but they're also known as Esau. The prophet says Esau. And one of their big crops, they were, it was an agricultural society. Grapes, that was one of their big crops. And it, and the prophet's making the point, you know, normally if somebody broke in, if a robber came in and stole, they might just take some and they would, they would leave some with you, right? Wouldn't they leave at least a few grapes? Of course they would. But, verse six, how Esau will be ransacked. When they are judged, There's not going to be anything left. It is going to be complete devastation. They were also proud of their political alliances. They're proud of their defenses, their natural resources, their wealth, their political alliances. But notice verse 7. All your allies, not your friends, 
All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. It wasn't long-standing enemies that were going to fight against them. It wasn't the normal enemies that are going to come into their country. It's, it's their friends. It's their allies. Now, two types of leaders would have been very important for these people who lived in Edom. The wise leaders and the military fighters called warriors. But watch what's going to happen. They're going to lose both of them. Look at verse 8. In that day. Now remember when we come to the prophets and you hear this language, in that day, it's reference to the day of the Lord. It's reference to judgment. And it's coming. In that day, declares the Lord. Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Teman was one of Esau's grandchildren. We read about in Genesis 36. And there was a city named for him. In fact, Teman was one of the two chief cities of Edom and there was a tribe Known by that name. And so again, the prophet's talking about the same people here. Why were they going to be judged? What had these people done that was so terrible? Well, verses 10 to 14 give that answer. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, While strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. In other words, here's your brothers. (laughs) You're related to the Israelites. And the Israelites had something come to them. They had a military arm. They had an army move in and capture them and take them into exile. And, And what did you do? What did you do? You stood aloof while they carried off the wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots. Just like people gambling over the, over the clothes and stuff. You just, you just sat back and watched it. So again, we go back to our map with Israel and Judah. Obadiah is speaking mainly to the southern kingdom because Assyria has already marched in and taken Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel into, into captivity. But in 586, Babylon came in and took Judah captive, destroyed Jerusalem. They, and they took the people away. And I think that's what the reference is here too in verse 10. While this happened, Edom, rather than fighting with Judah, or rather saying, oh, this is terrible. You, you just, you, you stood aloof and you, you watched this. In fact, in Psalm 137, verse 7, the psalmist says, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell? Tear it down, they cried. 
tear it down to its foundation. So now they're not only not helping, they're standing aloof, but it, they're even doing more. They're, they're kind of happy that it's happening. They're, tear it down. Notice these next few verses. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize wealth in the day of their disaster. You see the progression? (laughs) They're not just only engaging in verbal abuse, like, yeah, tear it down, tear it down, but they're, they're, they're gloating. And they're, they're actually engaging themselves. Now they're, they're not only doing psychological intimidation, but they're joining in with the looting and the pillaging themselves. They're, they're taking advantage of their own relatives who are being defeated. And they see it as an opportunity. Verse 14, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So again, if you can picture them up on the hill and they're watching, they're watching all of their relatives be taken away and they're mocking and they're cheering on the opponents and they're actually engaging themselves in taking advantage. So now as we come to verse 15 back in Obadiah, now there, there's a change because he's been speaking to Edom. He's been speaking to this one nation about what they did wrong and how they are going to be judged. But now look how he broadens it out. The day of the Lord is near for, read the next two words out loud with me, all nations. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Remember that the Old Testament prophets, as they prophesy, they're living in their present. And they're prophesying something most relevant to their present but something that's probably going to happen in the near future. But even at the same time and in the same breath, they can have this image of something that's going to happen out in the distance. And that is what Obadiah is doing. Looking at Edom for what they did to the nation of Israel and saying, you are going to be judged and you're going to be ransacked and there's nothing going to be left of you. And by the way, that happened. By the early 5th century, the Nabataeans marched in and just destroyed the Edomites and took them away. And by 70 AD, the Edomites disappeared from history. So all of that near prophecy came true. But as Obadiah is pointing to the near prophecy, he's using all of this as a picture of another day of judgment. One that is going to be devastating. And it's called the day 
of the Lord. And it's for all nations. And on that day, it's two-sided. God is going to save his people. He's going to deal with justice. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to destroy sin and evil. But that means that his people are going to be rewarded and made just by him. But evil people are going to be punished and judged. That's what the day of the Lord is about. Verse 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. That first word in that verse is very important. It it changes things. But all of this is about judgment. But there's also going to be deliverance. There is going to be deliverance. It's a major turning point. God is going to cleanse. God is going to restore. God is going to reunite the people of Israel. These kingdom that was divided, look in verse 18, you get names that are from north and south, Jacob and Joseph. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will be They will set him on fire and destroy him. There'll be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Now, by as I mentioned, by the time of Obadiah, the ten tribes of the north, of the northern kingdom, had already been taken into captivity by Assyria. And only the two tribes in the south remained in the land. There was nobody in the land but these two tribes. But verses 18 to 20 expand this prophecy and they include all these various geographical locations that I had to try to read the names for. And you just sat there and smirked. You enjoyed it. I could see it. You're thinking, I'm glad he's reading that. But all these various places in the north and south are going to be reunited. In other words, Israel is going to have a future role to play in God's plan. And then the book ends in verse 21 with this. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. It didn't look like the kingdom was the Lord's in the day of Edom. (laughs) Because there was evil reigning and ruling. That's just temporary. There's going to be a day that God is going to say, enough. And I'm going to rule. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah says that God is going to reverse the terrible practices of exile. 
these nations that go in and conquer people and take them away and get rid of them. God is going to turn it all around and he's going to set up his kingdom and he's going to get rid of evil. That's the day of the Lord. And more importantly, he is going to establish his kingdom. So again, a lot of this has already happened. It happened soon after, relatively soon after Obadiah prophesied it. Some of it is still to happen when God is going to set up that final kingdom. What about us today? What do we take away from this today? What can we learn that helps us in our lives today? So there are three lessons that I want us to go away with. Number one, regardless of how things might appear now, the sovereign God will judge sin and establish his kingdom. The sovereign God will judge sin and establish his kingdom, regardless of how things look now. Now, in Obadiah, God is personal. It uses his covenant name, his personal name, Yahweh, but he's also powerful. He's not out of control. As these nations war with each other and do all these terrible things, it's not that God is over somewhere in the corner wringing his hand saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's just waiting his time. He's allowing things to play out. He is sovereign. He is going to establish his kingdom. He is going to restore his kingdom on Mount Zion, which where King David captured and had the temple built. That's where it's going to happen. Now, if you look at our world, you look in the United States of America, and you look in China and Korea and various places in Asia and various places in Africa and Central America and South, many, many, you just look at our world, it kind of looks like a mess, doesn't it? It looks like there are so many places where evil is winning. But a book like Obadiah can remind us that we're just living in that in-between time. And God is going to establish his kingdom. God is sovereign. He is powerful enough. And he is going to reign. He's in charge. We don't always see it right now. It's hard to see it. It's hard to see it when we live in a broken society. Whether it's these national and international things. Or even personal things in broken relationships. It's hard to see it. But God is on his throne and he's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to rule forever and ever lesson number two pride is both deceptive and dangerous it's both deceptive and dangerous pride can lead to false security can make you think you're something you're not can make you think that there are things you can depend on that you can't really depend on. Eden thought it could never fall. Eden was up on the rocks. <laughs> oh, we can never fall. We're, we're proud of ourselves, right? And they looked around and the, their problem was they looked around and they looked down. But they didn't look up and see God the warrior. Pride is deceptive and dangerous and so bringing this to us today, it's, it's good to be thankful for your nation. It's 
good to thank God for America and the things and the freedoms we have. I personally think I I don't want to live anywhere else. I'm thankful for America and I'm thankful for people who protect and defend America. But you know what? It's dangerous for us to put our trust in things like national security or economic strength and independence or even excellent health care, right? How many of us living four years ago and longer ever thought there could be a pandemic in our lifetime that would kill millions of people and you wouldn't even know how to combat it? The greatest scientific minds in the world would go back and forth about what to do and how to how to deal with it. Pride pride is both deceptive and dangerous. What about personal pride? We, we can be very proud personally. I think America I mean America's kind of founded on that, right? You know, the the western individualism, the rugged western individualism. I can take care of myself and it can lead us to think that we don't need to listen to others. That we don't need to be corrected ever by anyone. That we can rely on ourselves and this is pumped into us. I'm a believer in healthy self-esteem, but we are pumping children over and over and over. The ideas you can do anything, you can do everything, be your best self, live your best life. And it, and it came to expression in one of the most famous songs of all time, right? Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Right. Not God's way. I did it my way. It can be small things. I've got the best yard in the neighborhood. I'm the smartest kid in the class. I'm one of the most popular students at school. I've made a pretty good career of myself for myself. I look pretty good. I don't need parents telling me what to do. I don't need children telling me what to do. I don't need friends telling me what to do. But the scripture says, what do you have that you didn't receive? God is the one that gave you breath and life and talent and ability and opportunity. And pride doesn't recognize any of that. Pride is dangerous. Now, we don't, we're not an agricultural society. I mean, unless, I mean, certain sectors of our society, maybe in the Midwest, professional farmers depend on agriculture, you know, for their jobs, like the people here did. But we tend to depend on things like education and jobs, right? You know, in one sense, Salvation is so easy. Personal salvation is so easy. I mean, the message of the gospel is so clear and so plain and so simple. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. God is perfect. We're not. We're separated from God. And God didn't like that. God didn't want it to stay that way. And so he sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us to forgive our sins. And if we'll just admit that we're sinners and put our faith in him Give our lives to him. He will save us and he will make us his own. It's, 
It's some simple, in fact, some people say it's too good to be true. It's too simple to be true. But in one sense, it's really simple. But you know what? In another sense, it's really hard because it requires admitting that you have a need. It requires admitting that you need a savior. Not that you can be good enough on your own. You can give enough away. You can volunteer enough or be moral enough. It admits you need God. That's, that's repentance. <laughs> well, the third lesson for us today, the opposite of and the answer to human pride is the humility of Jesus Christ. We always like to look afford. And when we read a book that's hundreds of years before Jesus, God put it in the Bible as part of one big story. And what ways does this point forward? Well, think about what the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father. That's the opposite of pride. That's an answer to our human pride. And let's just picture it right here. Let's compare and contrast Edom with Jesus Christ. So Edom was geographically lifted up and they lifted themselves up. And God brought them down. Jesus was exalted. He existed, Philippians 2, forever in the nature of God. He always existed as God. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He made that choice. And what did God do? God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Well, if you want to summarize... Obadiah, in one short sentence, I felt like I almost didn't summarize it, try to summarize it in one sentence, but I did, and I thought, well, it, it, here, as we think about it, it's 21 verses. It's got to be a short sentence, right? <laughs> it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So I felt like we should either have the shortest sermon ever or the shortest sentence, and I chose the shortest sentence, and I know you're all happy about that. <laughs> Oh, boy. Here it is. The way up with God is down. The way up with God is down. I close with this. 
I don't, I can't read all of them. I don't have time to read all of them, but later you might want to Google. Nancy Lee DeMoss has this great long list of what is the difference between proud people and broken people. And, and she gives many, many different differences between a proud person and a broken person or a humble person. Let me just read a few and I'll wrap it up with this. She talks about the different attitudes, like in attitudes for others. For instance, proud people focus on the failures of others and can readily point out those faults. Broken people are more conscious of their own spiritual need than of anyone else's. So these are good as listen to these as we wrap it up and just examine our own hearts. How about attitudes about rights? Our world is screaming about rights, isn't it? Proud people claim rights and have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights and have a meek spirit. Attitudes about service and ministry. And again, I'm only giving you one or two from each. She gives four or five in each of these categories. Proud people have a feeling, conscious or subconscious, that this ministry or this organization is privileged to have me and my gifts. They focus on what they can do for God. Broken people have a heart attitude that says, I don't deserve to have any part in this ministry. They know they have nothing to offer God except the life of Jesus flowing through their broken lives. Attitudes about recognition. Proud people are concerned about appearing respectable. They're driven to protect their image and their reputation. Broken people are concerned about being real. They care less about what others think than about what God knows. They're willing to die to their own reputation. Attitudes about relationships. Proud people wait for others to come and ask forgiveness when there's a misunderstanding or a breach in a relationship. Broken people take the initiative to be reconciled no matter how wrong the other party may have been. Proud people become bitter and resentful when they're wronged. They have emotional temper tantrums. They hold others hostage and are easily offended. They carry grudges and keep a record of others' wrongs. Broken people give thanks in all things. They're quick to forgive those who wrong them. Attitudes about sin. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit their failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. Attitudes about their walk with God. Proud people don't think they need to repent of anything. Broken people realize they need to maintain a continual heart attitude of repentance. One of my favorite hymns is when I survey the wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The way up with God is down. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.